The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Amen. Well, I want to first um, ask my son to come up this morning. This is Asaph. Come on up here. I want you to see everybody. This is Ace. He is my seven-year-old son, and I love him very much. And Ace, I need your help this morning, okay? You're going to help me with my sermon. Right back there, Jonathan is sitting on the back seat. I need you to go back there very quickly but safely and bring my Bible to me. Can you do that for me? You want to do that? He's going to help me out. This morning I told him he was going to help me with my sermon, and his face just lit up and was so excited. And I want you to know, Ace, that I love you, and I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Can you go downstairs now and enjoy your lesson from Ray? Tell me all about what he has to say, okay? Thank you, Ace. He loved that. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 10. As you turn there, let me remind you where we are in this book so that we can kind of get our bearings as we jump in. Paul is writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, and he's encouraging him to fan the flame of zeal in his personal walk with the Lord. It seems that Paul is concerned that Timothy is wavering or that he might fold under the pressure of the many enemies that were coming against God in the church of Ephesus. For the past 22 verses, Paul has been warning Timothy about the false teachers and the false converts that have infiltrated the church there at Ephesus. In the midst of all that advisory, all of that warning that he's giving him, he explained to Timothy that false teaching always naturally results in sinful actions. We've just completed a section that contains 19 specific kinds of sinful behaviors that naturally grow out of false doctrine, or as Jesus would say it, you know a tree by its fruit. Paul summarizes all 19 of those sinful actions using one kind of catch-all word, which is the word ungodliness. And it's no small thing that Paul is calling Timothy to both desire and to pursue godliness on a consistent basis in both 1st and 2nd Timothy. That's one of the main themes that runs through both books. Now we've reached the transitional segment in the book. He is no longer specifically going to focus on false teachers for a while. And in a few verses, he's going to focus intensely on the word of God and the nature of the scripture. But right now we're in a transitional period, and as I read the text that we're seeing this morning, I want you to hear the heart of the author in these things. This is not like a student being called in and lectured by a principal. No, this is much closer to the ideal father loving his now adult son and encouraging him and putting his arm around him and telling him, I think you're doing this well, continue, keep striving for this. So please follow along as I read now, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. 
which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray that God would add his blessing to the word this morning. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to hear your word, I pray that every heart in this room would be bowed low before you. I ask that you would help this sermon to land with appropriate weight, cause it to convict us and to uplift us, cause it to prepare us for persecutions that will come if we are pursuing you. Let our eyes be fixed on Jesus because of your word this morning. So we ask that you would give grace, we pray. Amen. The way that we are going to approach the text this morning is very simple. We just have a three-point outline, and it goes something like this. First, we'll consider that that we are to be steadfast in godliness. Secondly, we are to see that we are called to follow godly examples. And finally, we're going to see that we should anticipate persecution. Let's begin with point number one, be steadfast in godliness. Paul starts this section by contrasting Timothy with all of the false teachers and false converts that he spoke about earlier in the chapter. But he says, you, however, that term, you, however, indicates that Timothy is not like them. He is not like those people that he has described and condemned, whereas they are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding to the faith, as Paul says. Timothy is standing firm in godliness. Now consider how wonderful it must have been for Timothy to see Paul recognizing that in his life. Consider how wonderful it would have been for Timothy to see his father figure in the faith encouraging him and saying, you're not like those guys. I don't know what it is, but it seems to be universally true, at least in my experience and my awareness, that there's something particularly in men that we crave and desire our father's affection. We desire for their approval. We want them to say, well done. You're doing it right. You're getting it. We like it when our fathers recognize us as succeeding. And see, we love to be affirmed. Consider the way that Timothy would be receiving this as a spiritual son, being affirmed by his father. But consider the love of Paul to affirm him. It's as if he's saying, good job. Keep going. I'm so glad you made it this far. Like I said earlier, it's like he's putting his arm around him and just giving him a big hug as a father figure. Now, I want to say to us in this room, this should be an example of what mentorship and discipleship should look like. It's not just a way to chip away at all the negative things in somebody's life, but to encourage and approve the ways that they are growing. Let's not be stingy with our encouragements when we see that somebody is making genuine strides towards godliness. Now, I know I have a lot of growing to do in this area, but I am praying that God would help me and us as a church to be men and women of encouragement, that when we see godliness, we would recognize it and praise it in one another. But not only is Paul encouraging Timothy, and not only is he encouraging him to be steadfast, he is also cheering him on to continue. 
Not to stop. Not that, okay, you've arrived, you've achieved this, now you're good, do whatever you want, but you have, con- have to continue in what you have been doing. In verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Don't waver, Timothy. Keep going. In verse 12, Paul promises, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think we're all supposed to see this as Timothy does, as a genuine, or as Paul does, a genuine desire in Timothy's heart. If you desire to live godly in Christ, you will be persecuted. This was the centerpiece of Paul's thought and letter to Timothy, that you should desire godliness. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, Paul instructed Timothy to, quote, train yourself for godliness. He says in verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also the life to come. The Greek word for godliness is a compound word that is made up of two Greek words. One of them means to be in awe or to revere. And the other one is simply a word that means well or good. To simplify it, godliness means rightly having awe of God. This is important because it means that godliness is not just something that you do. It's not just actions. It's not just a form of outward expression of following some kind of legal code. There are many moral, kind, friendly people here that live in Nassau County. You see them all the time. There are probably most of the people in Long Island are probably nicer than I am as a person. But they're still not following Christ. They are on their way to hell. It is important to understand that being nice is not the same as being godly. Being moral is not the same thing as being godly. The late Jerry Bridges would often speak about godliness as devotion in action. He wrote in his book called The Practice of Godliness, he wrote the following, Devotion is not an activity. It is an attitude towards God. This attitude is composed of three essential elements. The fear of God, the love of God, and the desire for God. Note that all three elements focus upon God. The practice of godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses the heart upon God. From this Godward attitude arises the character and conduct that we usually think of as godliness. Do you see what he's saying? Your actions are not godliness. The heart that they come from is godly or ungodly. It's very important that we understand God is never primarily interested in our moral conformity to his commands, although he is. He is primarily concerned with our affections and our devotion and our heart of worship. What Jerry Bridges is getting at is that quote, is that every single action we take, we should be able to trace down to its root and see that it is coming out of a love for God, and a devotion to God, and a fear of God. That is why we are doing the things we are doing. So let's consider the anatomy of a good deed for a moment. We could take any good deed you want. You could take the, um, 
the proverbial helping the woman across the street or maybe helping somebody jump a car in your work parking lot or maybe volunteering at a homeless shelter. Any good work you want to pick will do. The action itself is like a plant that grows up, but you need to get down to the seed and see what is it in your heart that caused you to do that action. Was it merely to be seen by men? If you read chapters of Matthew, for example, Matthew 6 or Matthew 23, Jesus goes after the Pharisees for saying, basically all of this good stuff that you're doing, you're doing it because people see you. Is that the seed that your good work is growing out of? If it is, that is not godliness. That is self-centered, self-focused, self-worship. And that is idolatry. What we are called to do is we are called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, resulting in using every part of our being to give glory to him, which results in godly activity. Earlier, I had my son come up to the front and do a task for me, something very simple. And we're supposed to do good works because of what we saw with him. This morning, when he came into my bedroom, I said, Ace, come here, I want to talk to you for a minute. He's like, am I in trouble? No, you're not in trouble. Uh, I need your help this morning. And his face just lit up. You need my help? Yeah, I need your help with my sermon. And he knows I work really hard on my sermons. And I put a lot of time and energy into my sermon. And he's like, I can help you with that? And he had this massive smile, which is just beautiful to me. And he said, I want to do that. And I said, are you sure you want to help? And he's like, I want to help. I want to help. This morning, when I called him up, he wasn't dragging his feet. He wasn't down. He was so, I think, a little nervous because all these people are looking at him. But he really wanted to help. He wanted to help. Why did he want to help me? He wanted to help because he actually loves me and because he respects me and because he wants me to delight in him by working together with him. He wants to take part in what my ministry is. That's what godliness is like. It is when you are so enamored with God that you just want to please him. You just want to do what he wants you to do. You just want to be more like him. That is godliness. And I, I encounter people all the time who hate their jobs. If you don't know many of these people, just call a data center. Like call somebody that you have to talk to like on the phone. These people hate their jobs. They're not there because they want to be. Most of the time, the people you encounter don't like their jobs. But on the rare occasion that I encounter somebody who loves their job, it is a delight to work with that person. You enjoy interacting with that person. Listen, a lot of people, when they encounter Christians, they think of you like Christianity is your job, and the way that you're reacting to not being able to do something the Bible says not to do, or doing something the Bible tells you to do, they're looking at you and thinking, man, these people just like, they have no fun, they don't enjoy it. Christians should enjoy it. Christianity is not your job, it is your identity. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. You are not the same as you used to be, and the pleasures and delights that you have should be radically different because you love God and are pursuing Him. Please hear me. Procedural, surface-level morality, just merely going through the Christian motions, is a recipe for joyless Christianity. And Christianity isn't like your job, it is who you are. And when we look at the fact that the Bible gives us all of these rules, if all you're seeing is do this and don't do this, you're missing the point. 
The whole point is God says, this is who I am, therefore this is who I want you to be. And the point is that we are called to be made into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The emphasis on that sentence is at the beginning, not the end. It is on if you love me. Do you love me? Do you actually love God? If you love God, you will pursue God and you will do the things that please God. The natural result of loving God is wanting to be more like him. It's wanting to see what it is that he wants in this world and to go after it. Which brings us now to point number two, follow godly examples. Look again at verse 10 and following. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Timothy was a first-hand beneficiary of the teachings of Paul. He heard the sermons and the lectures and the conversations and the discipleship opportunities that Paul had to teach others and to preach to others as they had traveled together in ministry for the better part of a decade. But Paul also taught Timothy by the way he conducted himself. He saw Paul's conduct. He saw Paul's way of life. It says here that you have followed my very aim in life. Please understand that your conduct, what you do grows out of what you are aiming to do, what your aim in life is. And he's saying, you've seen that my aim in life was Godward. I wanted to please God. I wanted to live as though he sees every millisecond of my life and he cares very much about what I do. Are you intentionally living in light of eternity like that? Are you taking every thought captive? Timothy had a front row seat to watch Paul be a good example of commitment to having his aim in life be a godly one. He had seen how Paul had been committed to become all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. Timothy had watched Paul carry out ministry. How? As it says here, you followed my faith. He had watched Paul evangelize and pastor in what manner? As he says here, with patience. He had seen how all of this was done out of love. Love for God and love for the people of God. Timothy had observed exactly what it looks like to steadfastly persevere in the face of suffering. He had seen Paul's response when he was kicked out of Antioch. He saw how Paul responded to that. He saw the way that Paul responded when he left Iconium under the threat of violence. And then he saw what happened when he went to nearby Lystra and the people there responded so negatively that they threw rocks at him until he, they thought he was dead. They literally dragged his, what they thought was his corpse out of the city and dropped it there for the birds to eat him thinking he was dead. And then what does Timothy see Paul doing? That he got up, walked right back into Lystra, and began preaching the gospel. Again, Timothy, you saw me do that. You've seen that persecution does not mean we back down. You've seen that it means we stand firm. 
Timothy was a witness of the fact that Paul never gave in just because things got hard. So here's the question. Why is Paul reminding Timothy of all of these things that he has observed? Why is he saying, remember that all this stuff that we've gone through together? You remember Proverbs, I think it's 1717 that says that a brother is born for adversity. You know, when you are in a foxhole with somebody in the military, you grow a bond with them. When you save somebody's life and then they save yours back and forth in the military, those people grow really close with one another and have a lifelong friendship because they have this shared experience where they have lived through something that they have fought together. Paul is reminding Timothy, we've gone through this together. You were in the foxhole with me and you have come out imitating me, being like me, following these things that I have done. So why point out all these ways that Timothy is following Paul's example? It's because this decade of personal experience speaks volumes. It brings a very personal weight to what Paul is about to say to Timothy. Paul is not ignorant of the cost of being persecuted. He is not unrealistic when he presents this ideal of standing firm through trials. But mostly, Paul is saying this because he wants Timothy to continue to imitate him. When I was about seven or so, like my son's age when he came up here, uh, my pastor growing up made an illustration. I'm going to do my very best to explain it, how it happened, but I was seven, so if I get a few details, I trust the Lord will forgive me. Um, when I was growing up, they didn't have as many litigious, the society was not as litigious as it is now. People didn't sue each other all that much, so they got away with this. There was, um, the pastor had, I think this was for like a men's study or, I'm not exactly sure. They covered the stage in traps. And by traps, I mean animal traps. You know, the kinds that snap shut and they have like claws. If, if you step in them, they'll snap your leg in half kind of thing. So they covered the stage in these things and made a maze out of them. And then during the lesson or sermon or whatever it was, they had me come up with my dad and my dad blindfold me. And then they told my father, you need to direct him through this maze. And uh, if he steps in one of those things, he's probably going to just lose a foot. So you need to make sure you do a good job. And I don't know if my dad did this or if he was instructed to do this or if the pastor was teaching to do this, but my dad, instead of talking me through it, walked in front of me and I walked through with my hand holding the back of his shirt as I followed him through this maze of these animal traps. Now, we wouldn't do that here at our church. Um, But I do want to say that imagery is very helpful. Paul is not saying, all right, Timothy, just take a left. Nope, now take a right. He's saying, hold the back of my shirt, see what I did, and follow me. Follow me through this maze. I have gone through it before you. I've seen what persecution is like. I've tasted it myself, and I know it's hard, but I'm telling you, you've got to stand firm in the midst of it. So, Timothy, continue on. Continue doing what you have been doing, seeing the way that I have been able to do it. Paul summarized uh, summarized Timothy's entire life here in a moment, his whole life of discipleship, by calling back to the teaching of his mother and his grandmother. And because this is a plural word, it seems that Paul is also lumping himself into this grouping. He says in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. Quick survey, question. How many people in this room grew up in a family that knew Christ and loved Christ, where you had at least one parent 
who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you regularly. How many of you are like that? Good number. Put them high. Make sure everyone can see them. Now, if you're not raising your hand now, everybody put your hand down. If you didn't raise your hand earlier, please raise your hand. We got probably about a 50-50, close to that at least, maybe a little more on the second. What I do want to say is it is a huge blessing. It is a major blessing when a father or mother or especially both can teach the truth of what we are called to do to their children. I was able to avoid losing a foot that day because I followed my dad through that minefield of traps. Paul is pleading with Timothy in a very personal way here to continue to live a godly life just like those who have gone before you. Now, I encourage you to do this as well. Watch those who have gone before you. Observe those who are faithfully following Christ who have gone on before you. Faithful believers who have followed Jesus through thick and thin, many for many years. Observe their life. Follow Christ and observe people who rec- and recognize those who follow Christ faithfully. We live in a time when we have like more resources at our fingertips than we can even handle. The internet has provided us with opportunities to be able to receive and learn about more than we could ever fit into our brain. I want to say that this is not only true for personal examples that you have, although I think that is good. See people that you know and have watched their lives, but also find stories and biographies of missionaries and martyrs and pastors and preachers and church fathers and Bible translators. These men and women should be remembered. They should be observed. We should be encouraged by every one of them. And so I encourage you, if you have, especially if you've never read a, a missionary biography, this next year coming up, Set aside one book, one missionary biography at least that you will go through and you will read about what God has done through a dedicated believer who took the gospel to some place in the world that previously did not have it. I know for myself, I can say that when I set my attention on observing people like that who have faithfully obeyed the call of Christ, it stirs me up. It gives me joy. It reminds me that the world is bigger than just our little church here in Massapequa. So I want to encourage you to see that kind of devotion in action. I want you to see that so you can shake off apathy and so that your passion for God's glory is kindled. But please notice something important here, verse 15. It says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice that their example of faithfulness is valid only insofar and specifically because it accords with the scripture. It was not the example of Lois or Eunice or even the example of Paul that was able to make them wise for salvation. It was because their example pointed them to the scripture. Timothy's mentors had always pointed him past themselves and to the Bible. They pointed Timothy to the place that God had revealed himself, his word. So parents, God has given you this incredible responsibility. I remember, since we're talking about Ace being here today, I remember when he was born, he's my firstborn, and I just remember like planning on him coming, you know, there's nine months of this reality that a child is on its way, but then the first day he was born and I held him, I realized something, for the next 18 years, I don't get a day off. If I do, this child will probably die. Like I am responsible to make sure he lives. 
I have to, and obviously Ashley is much more involved in the regular day-to-day making sure he eats and all of those things. But if I don't provide for this kid and help him, he won't make it. That is my calling before God. And you as parents are called to the same things to provide for and give guidance to and protect your kiddos, which is good. But that external stuff is very minor compared to what we are called to do for their heart. What we are called to do in terms of feeding their bodies is very important. But if you are not giving them the bread of life and pointing them to Jesus every day, we're missing the bigger part of our calling. We have to understand that God has given us the responsibility of showing them Christ. And one of the best ways to do that is ensuring that they are acquainted with the scripture that is able to make them wise unto salvation. Look, I want nothing more than for my kiddos to be saved. I would love that. I can't do that. You can't save your kids. You cannot change their heart. You cannot open their eyes to believe the gospel. But what you can do is you can faithfully present Christ to them just like Lois and Eunice did for Timothy. You wouldn't let a day go by without feeding them food. Don't let a day go by without feeding them the word. Let's be realistic for a moment. This is difficult. This is really, really challenging. Not only is it hard to have any kind of natural routine in your family, especially when kiddos are very young, it's also specifically difficult when the Word of God is involved because everything in the world is going to be pulling their attentions away from this. Their natural affection is not for the Word of God. You have to build that into them to the best of your ability to sit there and to hear the reading of his word. So I want to encourage you, don't try this. If you're starting from scratch, don't start an entire church service at your house every night. Start something small. Read a passage of the Bible. Ask them some questions about it. Say what really stood out to you about it. Pray about it. And then sing a song together to the Lord. Look, our family is not made up of great singers except for maybe Petra and Athens. Most of us are not great singers. When we sing, it's not a a great sound. God loves it. Lead your family in singing. One of the best ways to teach their little hearts about the love of God is to teach them through songs that when you walk away, they're going to keep singing them. I have a video on my phone of my kids uh, in July, as I was driving my kids around, singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing in july because they love it they have no idea what they're saying but someday they will and those words are imprinted in their minds and lord willing someday will be in their heart so just start small doing something little like that goes a long way and i encourage you parents do your best to help them enjoy this and see that the word of god is delightful let them see that you love it and let them see that it is enjoyable to taste the word of god one of the ways that we do this in our family I'm not saying that we're perfect by any means at family devotions, but one of the ways that we do this has been very fun for our kids. It's one of their favorite games in the world right now. It's called Old Testament, New Testament. I tell them either a uh, person from the Bible or a book of the Bible or something, an event that happened in the Bible, and very simply they say it's either Old Testament or New Testament. It's not hard. We do it all the time while we're driving. But what's really good that has grown out of this is the fact that when they get it wrong, especially, it shows me that they're missing a piece here or there. Or sometimes, even when they get it right, they'll just ask me questions. Like the other day, David and Goliath, Old Testament, New Testament. My son says, that's easy, old. 
said, okay, good job, Ace. And he goes, I have a question. Why was David fighting Goliath? That's a great question. And little things like that can help you find blind spots where your kids are just missing it. So I want to encourage you. First of all, don't do exactly what I do because I don't do anything perfectly well. But also, I'm, I encourage you to find ways to connect specifically with your children while you have them. And if you haven't ever done this, strive to start now. Don't wait for a New Year's resolution. Start it now. Kiddos, we're going to start something tonight. I just want you to sit here with me. We're going to open the Bible. John chapter 1, we're going to read the first part of it. We're going to talk about it. Start now. So I want to close that point, follow godly examples, by saying, be a godly example. Be a godly example to all who are watching you, whether that's somebody who is in your home, like your children, or that that's other people in the church. Not only should you follow godly examples, but he's telling Timothy, essentially, you need to grow up into being a godly example for others as well. So follow godly examples, which will naturally result in you becoming a godly example. Which brings us now to point number three, anticipate persecution. Let's consider the promise that we're given in verse 12 again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. If your desires are to please God, then you will not be pleasing to the world. The more your eyes are fixed on Jesus, the more the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And the world hates to lose its subscribers. People do not like to sin alone. They want you to join them. The darkness does not want light shining on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 reminds us that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the, to the one, a fragrance from death to death To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Do you see what he's saying here? You have a smell about you. You have this stench to the world if you love God. Because you have Christ in you and they are repelled by that. But to those who are being saved, they are drawn to that. They smell that on you and they see that it is the aroma of life to life. The Christian is not only to anticipate a life Christians are not called to anticipate a life that is void of difficulty. We should expect a life that is filled with challenges. In fact, generally speaking, I think that life is probably much easier for those who reject Christ. This life is easier for them. Jesus told his disciples to expect this in John 15, 18 through 21. He says these words, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. Jesus came to earth to save us. He did so knowing that he would be despised and rejected by men. The one who created all things was rejected by his his creation. The only one who had never sinned against anyone was treated by mankind like the greatest sinner who has ever lived. 
the one who gave life and breath to all who live, gave his life for us on the cross. And why? Why did Jesus die? To save us. Not to save himself. To save us. He suffered in our place. His suffering was more immense than anything we could ever imagine. He took the wrath of God for his people, meaning that we will never know in an experiential way what it means to feel the punishment of our sin. We won't ever feel that. Are we greater than our master? Should we expect better treatment than he received? Are we walking like he walked? Then we should expect the world to react like it reacted to him. We've experienced such freedom of religion in our nation that it has seemingly developed in us an expectation of liberty, an expectation of no persecution. We seem to be allergic to even the slightest form of action against us. We are often surprised and completely caught off guard that someone would hate us because of our beliefs. None of us in this country fear that we are going to be killed for our faith. And at this point in our, in our nation, we're not fearful that we're even going to be put in jail for proclaiming the gospel. At most, we might miss out on a promotion or on a dinner party here or there. But when we do encounter even those minor forms of persecution, how do we respond? Look at how Paul wants us to think about persecution in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, when he says this, For it has been granted, this word could also be gifted, to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Just like salvation is a gift from God, so is suffering. It's a present that most of us probably aren't asking for under our Christmas tree. He's saying, oh, Philippians, this persecution that is coming against you is not happening because God is looking away or that he's ignoring you or letting this happen in his absence. No, it is happening because God has divinely ordained it for your good. Consider Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Of the eight Beatitudes, this is the last one. It's the only one that gets more than one line, right? It's the most extensive of the Beatitudes. And Jesus speaks of persecution this way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you encounter persecution, is that the way you respond? To rejoice and be glad? Do you count it an honor to suffer for the name of Christ? Or are you terrified that your reputation or your job status or your friend group will be altered because of this situation? I find it interesting what Peter says about this. I think he explains it best in his uh, first letter, he writes in First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do you see what he's getting at here? The people he's writing to are stunned that the world is against them. And he said, don't be surprised. Instead, when this happens, you should rejoice. We shouldn't, we shouldn't seek out persecution. Don't go picking a fight. We shouldn't expect, but we should expect persecution. It's an integral, integral way for God to conform us to the image of Jesus. Don't fear it when it shows up. In our nation right now, the sexual revolution is picking up speed rapidly. It is very likely that this watershed issue is going to be the source of much persecution in our country. If you don't agree with the, the decisions the world makes or the identifications that the world makes, it is very likely that we are going to be asked questions that we must answer in accordance with God's word, and that will result in social persecution. We should be regularly praying that God would give us religious liberty in a continued way here in our country, and that he would expand that kind of religious liberty across the world. But we are to stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Do you remember what they were told to do? Bow down to this statue, 90 foot tall, 9 feet wide. Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down when we play the music. But when they are called before them, they said, we are not going to. They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Persecution is going to come one avenue or another. There's cycles that go through the church in church history where sometimes the church has periods of freedom in certain locations and eventually those freedoms are taken away. That will come whether in our generation or maybe 10 from now. Persecution will arise, and when it arises, we need to be able to stand firm. How is that going to happen? If our heart is in love with God to the point where we desire to honor Him above all else. I want to tell you a story as we close about John Wesley. John Wesley was a very godly man, and although theologically we have some differences with him, he was a very integral figure in the First Great Awakening here in the Americas. During that first great awakening, thousands upon thousands of people came to trust in Christ. There are many people who called themselves believers and who even attended churches who had no idea who Jesus Christ was. And the first great awakening reached many of these apathetic non-believers sitting in church pews. It also saved many people who had rejected God, who never would walk into a church building, thousands upon thousands. In fact, much of the the good that is still here in our Christian culture was really brought on by what happened in the First Great Awakening. Allow me to close by reading to you some sequential entries from John Wesley's journal as he chronicled the weekly morning and then evening preaching schedule. This was during his time as an itinerant missionary where he was going from place to place to place, preaching every morning and then going to another place and preaching that night, just wanting everyone he knew could talk to to hear the word of God. Here's what he says in his journal. Sunday, a.m., May 5th, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday, p.m., May 5th, same day, preached in St. John's, deacons said, get out, stay out. 
next week. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preached in St. Jude's. Can't go back there. Sunday a.m., May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called special meeting and said, I could never return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, same day. Preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m., May 26th, the next week. Preached in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday a.m., June 2nd, the following week. Preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., same day. Afternoon, preached in an open pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear. I hope the Lord would give us this kind of resolve, that we would be faithful even in the midst of persecution, even when challenges arise, even when people push back on what we have to say, even when people hate the message of the cross and see it as foolishness, that even if we are treated like Paul and people decide to throw rocks at us until they think we're dead, that we would have that kind of spirit to get up, not because we are strong, but because God is with us and because he is good and because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us and on us to do all that God has called us to do. We are able to minister insofar as he allows us to. We are able to follow him as far as he is walking in front of us. So as much as we've talked about following godly examples, I want to simply say by way of closing, follow God. And where he goes, we follow. And we know where he goes because we have his word. So church that I love, pursue God and pursue godliness and pursue godly examples and pursue being a godly example. And as you do, anticipate that persecution will come for the name of Christ. But know that he is worthy of everything that we can give. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray for steadfastness. I pray that we would be a people that are marked by our dedication to you, that we would revere you, that we would fear you, that we would honor you, that we would delight in you, that we would enjoy you, or to summarize those things, that we would love you. And God, I pray that all of this action that we do would be built off of that kind of delight in you, that we would do all of these good things and attend church and Bible studies and act as people are called to act according to the scripture, not because we're just following a subset of rules, but because we love you and we want to honor you. God, please make us a people that are filled with joy to imitate and be like Christ. God, I pray now as we go into the world that you would give us ample opportunity to live out this sermon this week. Although we do not desire persecution, Lord, I pray if any arises amongst our people or against our people this week, that you would give them the ability to stand firm, knowing whom they have believed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.